The following program is a special presentation of the Big Ten Network, produced in association with the University of Iowa. Welcome to Conversations from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. I'm Keisha Lynn. Marilyn Robinson has written two nonfiction books, numerous articles and book reviews, and, oh yes, three novels, each one of which has met with wide acclaim and much praise from critics and readers. Some of the awards, you may have heard of them before, Pulitzer, National Book Critics Circle Award, Penn Hemingway Award, and this writer teaches at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Marilyn, it's so great to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. I have to say, it's interesting, everybody talks about your novels. You've done lots of different kinds of writing, but it's the novels we come back to. Your first novel, Housekeeping, is considered a classic. It's on numerous best of book lists. Uh, your second novel is a novel you're most known for, which is Gilead, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2005. And then your third novel, when I was doing research for this, I saw many different ways in which it was described, this novel, Home. And the most unusual word I've come across yet is it's called a coquel which is, I'm thinking, which Latin root are we talking about here? It's not a prequel, not a sequel, but a, it is a companion book, Home. Can you talk about the development of Home as it relates to Gilead? Hmm, that's kind of hard to do. I, I actually um, promised myself I would never write a sequel. Mm -hmm. But um, when I was finished with Gilead, these characters were still very much on my mind. And... Uh, I've, as they were on my mind to an extent that it, it felt like a fully self-sufficient fiction. Um, and, and frankly, I hope that you can read the books in either sequence or that you can read one with, and it will be a fully freestanding novel without reference to the other one. You know? um, I'm just, I, uh, my writing tends to be very much character driven. And, uh, I just could not put those characters out of my mind, and I thought, really, why am I trying? Why try? Yeah. 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 With Gilead, it's very much a meditation from um, John Ames's viewpoint. Who is his? I, th I thought of him as his godfather, kind of like he is a he is a yeah. father to him. But then in Home, we're now seeing um, Jack relate to his actual father, Robert Boughton. And I thought that these two fathers of this son, you know, it's just interesting how you were able to deal how how you demonstrate in your fiction how they relate to this, this son of his, this son of theirs, I should say. Yes, I, I, it, it's interesting to me that I'm so interested in father-son relationships. Yeah. I don't know where that came from, mm -hmm. frankly. But um, it's, uh, I think that it's one of the most interesting, one of the most complex kinds of relationships I've ever seen because I think that even more than women look to their mothers, I think men look to their fathers mm -hmm. for approval and for a certain, you know, identity in a way. And uh, that given the norms of male behavior, that's a harder thing to negotiate for yeah, them. Absolutely. Um, and 
it's fascinating. It's a very interesting thing to simply be aware of. Yeah, and then of course the the story of this is the prodigal son from Luke, mm -hmm. and it's interesting because I remember learning that about the parable of the lost son, parable of the lost sheep, as a child and being somewhat angry, you know, as the good child. Why is why is it? And, and actually, I, I looked at that chapter of Luke again, chapter fifteen, which starts off with the parable of the lost sheep, where mm -hmm. the focus is on you know there are a hundred sheep, but there is one that is lost. And with Robert Boughton, Jack is this, I think he was the middle child, one of the middle sons, mm -hmm. youngest son mm -hmm. of eight children. All these other children, including Glory, the one who was taking care of Boughton in his old age, you know, they've all done well for the most part. And then here comes Jack and this, just this focus on, you know, this, this and, and as, as Robert Boughton is, uh, is dying, as is John Ames, and, you know, just that attention given, it was just really very magical and, you know, very poignant. Mm -hmm. I sort of think of Jack as being the the major theological problem mm -hmm. of his father's life. You know, what I mean to he, he loves Jack utterly, yeah. and at the same time he can't make his love for him efficacious. Mm -hmm. He consider he continues to be distant, to be self-defeating in a way, to you know, to be as as brilliant in a way as his father feels that he is, but spending it out. Yeah. prodigally in a certain <laughs> sense, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, I think that the the fact is that, that, that Old Boughton has spent his life articulating his sense of love and his sense of God around this problem that he can never solve. I know you've been here for, you've, you came here 20 years ago, 1989, mm -hmm. and you hear, I mean, talk about um, the impact Iowa has made on you. I mean, again, you've had these two books, which are just so strongly reminiscent of a certain time and a certain place. And just, can you speak a little bit about Iowa and, you know, the place it holds with your literature? Well, um, when I came here from Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and before that, I, of course, I lived in, in Idaho and Rhode Island. And, but in any case, uh, when I came into the Middle West, I would say to people, what is the history of the place? And they would say it doesn't have one. Oh. And um, which is, of course, never true, never. cannot be true. <laughs> so, so I started doing um, research into mm -hmm. the history of Iowa and the Middle West more generally. And um, I was basically uh, researching the, the period of settlement that came out of New England, mm -hmm. just because I had just come out of New England. But um, I found out it had a wonderful history, and, and it had inspired a great deal of very high-minded educational mm -hmm. activity and artistic activity and so on, um, and all of which were, were simultaneous with a very strong sense of this place, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. physically. And so um, I, I began, I wanted to under, try to understand it in the way that the people who, in a certain sense, created it understood it, you right, know, or the right. first encounters. So I started looking at it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I started reading the Audubon books about mm -hmm. what grows here and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and I, frankly, I simply learned the aesthetic of the landscape. And, yeah. and uh, so inevitably it comes into the books, you know. Um, Gilead, speaking of um, researching Iowa, Gilead's based on Tabor? Yes, it is. Tabor, mm -hmm. a little town in Iowa. It's in the southwest corner, I believe. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Is that yes, right? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Underground Railroad, for a lot of people that don't know, that it passed through Iowa. And I guess it went from west to east or east to west. I'm not sure. It's kind of hard to hard see. To I mean, see, Grinnell was on the uh, mm -hmm. Underground Railroad. There was a lot of... 
of activity of that kind in this part of the world. And, and it was underground, you know. Mm -hmm. And then after the um, Civil War, this sort of rejection of that tradition set in. And yeah. so the stories just, in many cases, were never told. Which you know? is interesting, isn't it? I mean, yes. we don't know a lot about, it's like you said, it's interesting that people don't think of there being history. And it's like a blank exactly. spot. <laughs> it's a blank spot in, in America right here. Right. Nothing happened, you know? Exactly. <laughs> Nothing I happened know. here. It all happened on the East Coast. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, I know. There's a, a strong and I think a really kind of destructive prejudice against the Middle West mm -hmm. on those very grounds. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, the, the the cultural vitality of this region has just been enormous, and yeah. it still is, of course. Absolutely, right. just discovering these little stories that aren't told. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah. And you know, I mean, Oberlin was the source of the settlement of Tabor. Right. You know, and mm -hmm. I mean, it was a very it was an integrated college from you know the, the late 1830s and yep. we have no idea you know we've just erased that history which mm -hmm. is a, a very valuable history right we have reinvented a lot of wheels because we've we uh, eliminated that from our memory absolutely and I, I as someone who also likes to study history I'm always pleasantly surprised to find out about these things yeah you know it's very I was I was uh, speaking at one of those little colleges, uh, you know, the, I mean, there are lots of these colleges that were on the Underground Railroad and so on, yeah. a whole sort of, you know, a, not an Ivy League, a mm -hmm, mm -hmm. soybean league or something. Right, I soybean know, like, league, yeah, exactly, But fine little colleges, you know, mm -hmm. I was just speaking at one of these and it happened at one of the first crucial um, galvanizing events of the uh, abolitionist movement occurred there in, in Jackson, Illinois. Mm -hmm. Nobody in that school knew that this had happened. I mean, wow. I was speaking to the student body, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was a very heroic moment, and uh, they were thrilled to know that. Mm -hmm. It's like it, mm -hmm. it takes a burden off of you to know that somehow the place where you live has been sort of sacralized right. Right. by by the honorable behavior of somebody before you. It's very mysterious, but I'm completely persuaded. Of course, I have to ask this question. Are, are you done with these characters? <laughs> I don't know. The question is more, are they done with are me? Are they done with you? <laughs> I don't know. I have a couple of obligations that I have to sure. satisfy first, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then I will see where my mind is. Yeah. 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 My coworker told me to tell you because as I was doing research for this, she comes to me and says, did you know that on President Obama's Facebook page, he lists Gilead as one of his favorite books? I do know that, and yes. nothing <laughs> makes me happier. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> it is just, I just wonderful. It is wonderful. And getting back to, you know, forgive me, I'm going to do this one more time, where we take Ames and Botton, these two wonderful men who are dying at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, wondering 50 years later, here we are with a black president that was put there by the good citizens of Iowa. What would they, you know, what would they think? They, I think they'd be thrilled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just, um, that was, and you know, the history is so ironic. You know, I mean, it's been an embarrassment for Iowa for a long time that it's overwhelmingly <laughs> white, you know. And when people talk about, you know, the what an absurd electoral system, you know, because Iowa votes first and they're all the right, same everybody's color. Right, all set. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, but it put us in a position to answer absolutely the question yep. of, of Obama's electability. Mm -hmm. Most of the people we've interviewed so far for this show have had books made into movies. And as I was doing research for 
you're, for this interview, I did not know that your first book, Housekeeping, had been made into a movie. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that movie? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you think that... Um, this is one of those things, it's kind of hard because books I like, I almost don't want them to be made into movies. <laughs> but at the same time, again, I think about the Iowa landscape and I think about what a cinematographer could do yes, <laughs> for Gilead and home. Is that something you would see or could see? Well, you know, that was sort of simmering around as a, oh, really? as a possibility. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I don't know if I should say this. I don't know if I, but the fact is that Paul Newman had agreed to play. Oh. John Ames. Oh, wow. He would have been great. Uh, and one of the wonderful uh, facts is that he spent two days discussing the theology of the book with William Sloan Coffin. Wonderful. I mean, which is a very moving thought. Now they're both saints. Now they're both saints, yeah. But um, mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's what happened to the movie. Uh -huh. And uh, it's a, if you're going to have a movie fall through, that's yeah, I mean, you, you know, can't be mad. You know, there's many different ways in which writers write. And so I want you to talk a little bit about how you write. And actually, since you do write many different types of work, I want to know if your process was different for writing novels versus writing a book review um, or other other things that you write. Well, <clears throat> when, I, when I write fiction, I like to be very comfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, as in like <laughs> prenatal or something. You know? <laughs> yes. Absolutely comfortable clothes, no distractions mm -hmm. in the environment and so on. I like to be, you know, in one corner of my own house mm -hmm. and so on. Um, when I write nonfiction, I sit upright in a chair mm -hmm. and write on a word processor, you know, mm -hmm. on, a, on a laptop. And the, the mood the, the character of concentration is completely different. That's interesting. Yeah, fiction is much closer to sort of dreaming, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. sort of inducing a very strong imagination of something and and trying, you know, preserving the integrity of it, the movement right. of it. You right. know? I think of you as a perpetual student because you're always looking, you're, you're always examining things. So wherever your mind is going, you're going to, to write in that direction. But the way in which that comes out it will differ depending on, you know, I guess whatever your preference would be in terms of fiction versus nonfiction versus, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's a matter of, I get obsessive about things, you mm -hmm. know. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm obsessing about people who don't exist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm obsessing about economics, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I do the reading or whatever that's required. Mm -hmm. I do it with, you know, an amazing amount of enjoyment considering the things that I'm reading for that kind of writing, right, you know, which right. are not so ingratiating on their face, you mm -hmm. know. <laughs> um, it's, it's all driven by, I, I mean, that's one of the things that's just so fortunate about the way my life has played out, yes. that I can, mm -hmm. I can really give myself over to whatever happens to be obsessing me at the moment mm -hmm. and feel as though it's the most valuable thing I can do with that time. Absolutely. You know? I think of it as a kind of blessing, you know, Absolutely. to be able to have that type of space. How do characters come to you typically in fiction? It has been true. I mean, mm -hmm. they tend to be voices mm -hmm. that I, it's just a very odd thing. I mean, I have great respect for the complexity of the brain yes. or mind or whatever <laughs> you want to call it. And I'm comfortable assuming that I don't know what's going on in my own mind a great mm -hmm. part of the time. But uh, some, it's kind of like hearing music or something, mm -hmm. I think. You know, you, there's some inflection that seems, in, you know, that seems like it has a content around it, you know, it has a body, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
In the case of, of, uh, of my first two novels, the vo that voice is the actual teller. Um, in, in the case of uh, Home, there are actually three voices that were important to me. Jack's was very important to me. Um, but I don't, I mean, it, I don't feel as though I create the characters. I feel as though I find them, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I, something has presented itself to me. What is it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And when you say you find them, and depending on what you're reading and you have something over, you're deep into something, and then suddenly, you know, you turn a corner and you discover there's a voice that suddenly starts, or maybe a, a voice kind of pulls you aside and says, you know, listen to me. And, you know, um, while, I, while I was writing um, Gilead, I was reading Charles Sanders' Purse, mm -hmm. who is way over my head. I want to be, I want to, I make no claim to understanding his philosophy after he gets past page five of any essay, you know. Okay. But, <laughs> but um, for those first five pages, he has this wonderfully elegant, unpretentious, mm -hmm. philosophical voice. It doesn't sound like anybody else. It's, it's as if he can take on questions of any scale yeah. without the slightest bit of self-consciousness about doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that was, I mean, it seemed to me as if reading him fed, in a certain sense, John Ames. Right, okay. Um, but, you know, it was, it was um, I've never read a word that he's written since mm -hmm. then, you know? <laughs> it was precisely what I needed what at that needed moment. For that, for that particular character, right. kind of like a supporting, yes, a supporting exactly. structure. Yes, exactly, exactly. Why did you want to become a writer? I never even thought about it in those terms. Mm -hmm. I always wrote. Yeah. I mean, when I was a little kid, I wrote bad little kid poetry, mm -hmm. and, and it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was my favorite thing to do, mm -hmm. you know. And um, of course, just in school, people would tell me that I wrote well, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. But um, I never, I didn't even have a concept of it as a profession until yeah. I was in college, I suppose, yeah. you know. So you started, because like, a lot of writers come in and they, they, rather, they'll say, I've been writing since I was a child, and you, you, when you get to a certain point where you think about it as a serious thing, mm -hmm. that sometimes there can be a bit of pressure. I know students come here and the fact of the Iowa Writers Workshop means we're serious about yes. writing. But when you, you know, you, you take it from the perspective of just wanting to do it, needing to do it, and being able to give voice to, again, these, these characters that come and pull your sleeve as you're doing your other reading, <laughs> you know, as you find it's something you want to do and you enjoy it. Exactly. It's, it's a very odd thing. I really did write housekeeping assuming it would never be published. Mm -hmm. It was sent to an agent by a friend of mine. Yeah. I didn't even send it out. Um, and that was a very pure experience. I wrote it just to write it, yeah. you know, without, and, and uh, I feel fortunate that everything happened that did happen with yeah. that book. It's mm -hmm. made a lot possible for me. But in a way, I, I miss that sense of freedom that I had, mm -hmm. that I was writing something that my mother would read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you never thought anybody would see. And then exactly. it goes on to be nominated for a Pulitzer, wins Penn Hemingway Award for first novel. Do you find, does it get harder for you, um, writing? It's a problem. Mm -hmm. It is. And frankly, I feel overextended at this point. Like right. I'm mm -hmm. writing too many things simultaneously. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, not an ex it's not an external pressure. It's yeah. one that I create for myself, sure. you know, which, which makes it in a way I can be philosophical about it, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I don't feel like a driven, you know, work person, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have one quick question I wanted to ask you about teaching.
Um, you said in your Times of London interview, I'm a writer when I'm writing something. The rest of the time, I like to put that word aside. So you have a lot of different hats that you wear. I want you to talk about teaching at the Writers' Workshop, because you've been doing it for 20 years now. And Isn't that amazing? It is amazing, <laughs> yeah. You a lot of classes come through. How has that shaped you? I mean, in terms of, well, of course with writing, but also as a teacher, what kinds of things have you learned from your students? What kinds of things do you want your students to learn from you? I I try I try to be responsive to the individual student. You know, I don't have any sort of overarching theory about what they should be writing or how they should be writing. But um, I think that I mean I think it's been very valuable to me to teach here because I, you have such interesting students, and that you talk about things at a very high level. Yeah. And um, I think it's sensitizing from the point of view of anyone who's writing. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, I've, I've enjoyed teaching seminars because they allow me to be obsessive about whatever right. I'm being obsessive about at Absolutely. the moment. Um, it's, it's, and I like the, um, this is a place where, where being a writer is so much assimilated into the local culture. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's nothing self-conscious about it at the same time that it's, it's a very uh, comfortable way to live here. It you is, know? isn't it? It yeah. is. Uh -huh. The quiet and the having such a small town that still has such a humane cultural environment. Absolutely. It is wonderful. Yeah. I am so sorry. We are actually out of time. This oh. time has flown by. But thank you. Thank you so You're much very for speaking to us today. <laughs> I want to make sure I get this book so people can see it. Marilyn Robinson's latest novel is Home, recently nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award. This has been Conversations from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. I'm Keisha Lynn. The preceding program was produced by the University of Iowa in association with the Big Ten Network.